history. Bloodlust. Thousands of years ago, these were the forces that ruled our world. A world where prey were scared of predators. And predators had an uncontrollable biological urge to maim and maul and... Multitudinous opportunities. Yeah, I don't have to cower in a herd anymore. Instead, I can be an astronaut. I don't have to be a lonely hunter anymore. Today, I can hunt for tax exemptions. I'm gonna be an actuary. And I can make the world a better place. I am going to be... Honey cop! That is the most stupidest thing I ever heard. It may seem impossible to small minds. I'm looking at you, Gideon Gray. But just 211 miles away stands the great city of Zootopia, where our ancestors first joined together in peace and declared that anyone can be anything! Back then, the world was divided in two. Now the two live together in harmony. It's Zootopia, a world where everyone's doing everything they can to make the world a better place, a world where over time we've evolved and moved beyond our primitive savage ways, very similar to the world we find ourselves living in today, right? Yeah, maybe not so much. Hey, welcome to Hope, everyone. My name is Scott Rains. I am one of the pastors here. I want to say welcome to the kids, the kids who are typically in Hope Kids, but I don't know if it's four times a year or five times a year. There's five weekends in a month, and we invite everyone to worship together on those weekends for several reasons. Number one, you get to see things like baptisms, and what's that all about? And I get to show uh, video clips from animated movies when the kids are in the room, so that's always exciting. Um, if for whatever reason you are concerned that your child is distracting the people around you, just I want to say something. They're not. It feels awful to you when you're a parent, but the, the people around you are actually, they love having something to do besides listening to the boring message. So they just <laughs> love paying attention to the kids and that sort of thing. It's great. So, but if you think like maybe you should leave, we do have the screens in overflow and, and over in the cove, they're super comfy chairs. So we just want people to, to make sure they feel like they're at home. Uh, last spring, I was able to go visit the Holy Land for the very first time. Uh, we arrived in Tel Aviv on a Friday evening. This was the view outside our hotel room. You look down the Mediterranean coast, and this is facing to the south, and you see there's a, a little piece of land that kind of juts out right there. That's the seaport of Joppa. Uh, that's the place where Jonah runs at the beginning of the book of Jonah in disobedience to the Lord. He runs away to Joppa to get on a boat to sail as far away as he can possibly go. Uh, 
The book of Jonah is actually not the only place, the only time in the Bible that Joppa is an important place. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them up to Acts chapter 9. Uh, Acts chapter 9 begins with the conversion of a savage man, a man named Saul. He's a Pharisee, he's a religious guy, and Saul has devoted his life to righteousness. Let's all say righteousness. Righteousness. Righteousness means how does a person get right with God? And Saul knows. Saul knows people get made right with God by strict adherence to God's law. And Pharisees studied the scriptures. They studied God's law so that they always knew what is the right way to read the law, what's the right way to interpret the law, what's the right way to apply the law. And so for a Pharisee, there's never a time, never a situation that might pop up where they don't know the right thing to do. And it really bothers a Pharisee when they see somebody doing a wrong thing, like breaking the law. So, for example, followers of Jesus. Jesus is this lawbreaker all the time, breaking Sabbath law, doing things that he's not supposed to be doing. And now the followers of Jesus, they're breaking the law too. So Saul is convinced it is a righteous endeavor that he is on heading up the Damascus road. He cannot wait to get to Damascus to arrest the Christians because they're lawbreakers, and this makes Saul angry, and he wants to let people, when they do wrong, he wants to make sure they know just how wrong they are. And along the way to Damascus, he has an encounter with Jesus. I'll pick up the story in verse 3. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. This light from heaven ends up blinding Saul. His companions kind of guide him the rest of the way to Damascus. And then he just kind of sits there waiting for a couple of days, unable to see, not sure what's going to happen next. In the meantime, God speaks to a man in another part of Damascus, a believer by the name of Ananias. And God says, Ananias, I've got a message I want you to deliver. Very similar to the message that uh, God wants Jonah to deliver. God wants Ananias to go to uh, Straight Street, to the home of a guy named Judas. And there he's going to find Saul of Tarsus. Well, Ananias has heard about Saul of Tarsus. He knows Saul is a predator and believers are his prey. He doesn't want to have anything to do with Saul of Tarsus. Please don't make me go. Please. And he wants to, he is hesitant to do what the Lord is asking him. So the Lord talks to him again. This is verse 15 of Acts chapter 9. Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. You look closely at this verse, this is a verse that shows the way the world is divided in two in Saul's day. You've got Gentiles on one side and you've got the people of Israel on the other side. You've got people who follow the law and people who don't care about the law. You've got God's people and people who are not God's people, at least not yet. And so Ananias decides to do what God's asking him to do. He goes and he finds Saul and it's interesting, here's a detail in the story I want you to pay attention to. Ananias begins to pray for Saul. He prays for the Holy Spirit to fill Saul. And let's read together what happens in verse 18. It's on the screen, read this out loud with me. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. 
It's how Acts chapter 9 begins. It begins with Saul, who is blind. Now he is able to see. He becomes an apostle. His name gets changed to Paul. Sometimes Paul is referred to as the apostle to the Gentiles. You go to the end of Acts chapter 9, and we're introduced or reintroduced to Peter. What is Peter up to after the death and resurrection of Jesus? Well, Peter's been going around, one of Jesus' closest followers, another one of the apostles. Peter's going around from village to village, place to place, telling people the good news of Jesus, the love and grace and life that's available to everyone through Jesus. This gets us back to Joppa. We're told in Joppa there's a group of believers, among them a woman named Tabitha. And Tabitha's doing everything she can to make the world a better place. She is kind, the scriptures tell us. Couldn't this world use a little more kindness? She is doing good things for the poor, and then she gets sick and she dies. And the believers send for Peter. And Peter comes and kneels beside the body of Tabitha as they are preparing her for burial. And Peter begins to pray. And here's what happens in verse 40. Turning to the body after he's been praying, turning to the body, he says, get up, Tabitha. And she opened her eyes. Acts 9 begins with Saul's eyes being opened as he is converted to a believer, a follower in Jesus Christ. It ends with Tabitha's eyes being opened as she moves from death to life. You turn the page to Acts chapter 10 and Peter's eyes are about to be opened. Peter, uh, Acts 10, tells us he's actually living in Joppa. The first thing we visited on our trip to the Holy Land, we went and uh, we visited St. Peter's Church in Joppa. It's a church built on the spot where they believe Peter was living, in the home of Simon the Tanner. And at the front of the church, there's a painting that kind of is a picture of what ends up happening in, in Acts chapter 10. So Peter is living there. Meanwhile, up the coast, about 35 miles up the coast from Joppa, is another seaport. This is Caesarea. And Caesarea was built by King Herod. King Herod was trying to impress the emperor of Rome, so he makes this man-made seaport. And in Acts chapter 10, there's a Gentile Roman officer, a captain by the name of Cornelius, who is stationed at Caesarea. And Luke who writes the Gospel of Luke, but also uh, the book of Acts, Luke tells us Cornelius the Gentile was a God-fearing man. A God-fearing man. He does good things for poor people, and he prays regularly. And in the context of prayer, one day about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Luke says, Cornelius the Gentile is praying, and an angel appears to him and says, you need to get connected with Peter down in Joppa. So Cornelius sends a couple of guys back down to Joppa. Meanwhile, the next day around noontime, we're told Peter is praying. Notice the context of prayer. Every character in this story, something pretty cool and amazing happens in the context of prayer. Peter is praying on a rooftop in Joppa, and he gets a vision. And we'll just read this together. This is Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 11. Peter saw the sky open. And something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter declared, I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. Three different times. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. Luke says this perplexes Peter. 
He doesn't quite know what he's trying to make sense. What could this possibly mean? Right then there's a knock on the door and it's the two dudes from uh, Caesarea, Cornelius's guys who have come there. They found Peter. They say, let's go back up and talk to our boss, Cornelius. They get there the next day and Peter goes into Cornelius' home and we're going to read together verse 28. This is like one of the first things that the apostle Peter says to Cornelius. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. You know... It is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. Now, a lot of times we talk about how divided our world today is. It's not against the law for us to go into the home of some... Well, if you have not been invited, it's against the law. But (laughs) if you've been invited, why would it be against the law? And then... For how long has it been against the law for a Jewish man to enter a home of a Gentile or to associate with a Gentile? Sort of depends on who you ask how that question would get answered. If you asked Saul, the Pharisee, Saul would point you to passages like Deuteronomy 7, Leviticus 18, Ezra 9, these passages that describe the wicked, evil, detestable practices of the people who are living in the promised land before Joshua leads the people into the promised land. And so the way these passages got interpreted over time, they got interpreted in a way that led to very clear divisions in society, very clear divisions within culture. You've got Jews and Gentiles. You've got righteous and unrighteous. You've got clean and unclean. You've got to understand for centuries, for centuries, culture has kind of been developed around this wall of division, this wall of hostility, this wall that separates the two. And now something just incredible is happening, and I think it would be impossible for me to overstate the radical nature of what's going on in Acts chapter 10. Uh, one day in, on a rooftop in Joppa, Peter, this faithful apostle, this follower of Jesus, believer in Jesus, Peter says, I'll never eat anything that our law says is unclean. The next day, he's in the home, he's breaking the law, and he's in the home of an unclean, unrighteous Gentile. And look at the way Peter kind of summarizes what he is learning in this chapter. These are a couple of verses that I just kind of put together. God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone. He's not talking about food anymore, now he's talking about people. God has shown me I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism, that we're all one. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free. Uh, There's no longer male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Is this utopia? No, it's Jesus' vision for life in the kingdom of God. Now, the reality is when we start talking about the kingdom of God, we only get moments, we only get glimpses of God's kingdom on earth because for whatever reason, God has chosen to build his kingdom here on earth through earthlings. And we earthlings get things wrong a lot. We mess up a lot. We are far from perfect. So the best we can hope for this side of heaven are just moments, glimpses of God's kingdom at work among us. And, and one of the things that it seems like generation after generation after generation, we earthlings are really good at getting wrong is we're so quick to divide. We're so quick to categorize people, label people, us and them. In the movie uh, Zootopia, 
Judy's childhood dreams come true. She becomes the first bunny cop on the Zootopia Police Department. There are a lot of people who think she doesn't have what it takes. They, they give her her first assignment. She's trying to uh, break this case. There are mammals that have gone missing, and even worse than having gone missing, they're turning savage. They're going savage. She enlists the help of a predator, a fox by the name of Nick Wilde, to help her track down these clues. They, they start to discover all of this, and... Judy thinks she knows perhaps why these predators are going savage. Take a look. So now I'll turn things over to the officer who cracked the case. Officer Judy Hobbs. What can you tell us about the animals that went savage? Well, the the an the animals in question. Um, Are they all different species? Yes. Yes, they are. <laughs> okay, so what is the connection? Oh, all we know is that they are all members of the predator family. So predators are the only ones going savage? That is accurate. Yes, that is accurate, yes. Why? Why is this happening? We still don't know. But, uh, it may have something to do with biology. What do you mean by that? A biological component, you know, something in their DNA. In their DNA? Can you elaborate on that, please? Yes. What I mean is, thousands of years ago, um, predators survived through their uh, aggressive hunting instincts. For whatever reason, they seem to be reverting back to their primitive savage ways. It is possible, so we must be vigilant. And we at the ZPD are prepared and are here to protect We're you. We're more mammals, so savage. What is being done to protect us? Have you considered a mandatory quarantine on predators? Okay, thank you, Officer Hops. Uh, that's all the time that we have. No more questions. Was I okay? Oh, you did fine. Oh, that went so fast. I didn't get a chance to mention you or say anything about how we... Oh, I think you said plenty. What do you mean? Clearly, there's a biological component. These predators may be reverting back to their primitive, savage ways. Are you serious? I just stated the facts of the case. I mean, it's not like a bunny could go savage. Right, but a fox could, huh? Nick, stop it. You're not like them. Oh, there's a them now. Uh, you know what I mean? You're not that kind of predator. The kind that needs to be muscled? The kind that makes you think you need to carry around fox repellent? Yeah, don't think I didn't notice that little item the first time we met. So l let me ask you a question. Are you afraid of me? Do you think I might go nuts? You think I might go savage? You think I might try to eat you? <gasps> I knew it. <laughs> That's when I thought somebody actually believed in me, huh? Probably best if you don't have a predator as a partner. One of the great challenges facing the leaders of the early church was how do we keep this movement from splintering and dividing even before it really gets started? How do we keep the church united? And there was all kinds of conflict, even between these great biblical characters, these heroes of our faith, Peter and Paul, 
great disagreement and, and conflict, arguments around what do we do with these, these Gentiles, these unclean, unrighteous people who now want to follow after Jesus? What are we going to do about that? And eventually they come to uh, some conclusions and, and they find a, a way forward, but it continues to be something that raises its head uh, in the early church and has to be addressed. And so Paul writes about it in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Christ himself has brought peace to us. This is what unites us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Again, exactly how does Jesus do this? How does Jesus break down walls? How, how does he tear down? How does he remove walls that keep people separated, that keep people divided? Paul goes on and tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, he ends, he ends the way of the law and commandments and regulations. He gets rid of this old covenant and he ushers in a new covenant, a new covenant written in Christ's blood, the new covenant of love and grace. And actually, you don't have to look very hard as you're reading through uh, the Bible from cover to cover to see this has always been God's desire. E even before the incarnation, even before the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, God has always wanted grace and love to rule and to reign. You look at the Jonah story, in, in chapter 1, you see it's very clear everyone is living under the law. They're living under the regulations and the commandments of the law. Jonah runs away from God. He gets on a boat in Joppa in disobedience to sail as far away from God as he can possibly go, and a storm comes up. And when this bad thing is happening, when things are going wrong, everyone on the boat, what do they start to do? Point fingers and find out who's to blame. Who's to blame for this bad thing that's happening? In the, and when they find out who has done wrong, who has been disobedient, what do they do to him? Kick him overboard. Let's get rid of him. And it continues. Jonah goes to Nineveh, a city filled with wrongdoers. And he wants to get rid of them. He wants them to be punished. But instead they pray. They humble themselves. They stop their evil ways. They stop their violence and they beg God to show them mercy and God has mercy on them. This is what God has always wanted, what God has always desired. This mercy and grace of God toward the wrongdoers in Nineveh greatly upsets Jonah. He gets very angry. And God's response to Jonah's anger in chapter 4 is fascinating to me. Here's uh, chapter 4, verse 4. It's on the screen. Read this out loud with me. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Is it right for you to be angry about this? I saw a video about 10 days ago, and, and the first time I saw the video, I was like, oh, our congregation would love that video. And it was actually like the day I'm getting ready to work on the last week's sermon and as I was reading the text and figuring out where the message was going to go, it's like, it just doesn't quite fit. I don't want to force it in. But I was looking ahead to chapter 4 and what we'd be talking about today and, and division and unity. And I thought, oh, it'll be a perfect one. So I saved it and uh, thought, I know it's old. It's 10 days old. But still, I think perhaps it has something to say to us. So, I mean, if, if this doesn't really catch your attention, that's fine. And, and we'll move on. But here's a video from 10 days ago. Uh, on the Scott Van Pelt show on ESPN, he does something called One Big Thing. And this was the one big thing just 10 days ago. Take a look. This one. 
people want to do good. College football fans are awesome, and folks in Iowa are apparently the best. I feel like maybe we're a couple of days late to this one, but this story just keeps getting bigger and better, and who knows, maybe there's another gear here, another step, so let's find out. If you aren't familiar, have you heard about the 20-something-year-old guy who wanted some money for Bush Light? You're thinking, well, sure, which one? This one, Carson King, 24-year-old Iowa State fan. Like a lot of folks out in Ames, he was fired up for game day to make its first trip out for the show. It was the annual Iowa game, which only upped the ante. Carson decided he'd bring a sign asking people to Venmo him money to buy beer. His mom joked with WHO-TV in Iowa City, this is going to be a proud mom moment. My son is going to be begging for money for beer on national television, close quote. Well, mom, I bet you're proud now. Here's what happened. People naturally immediately started sending money. Lots and lots of people all over the country. King told WHO, quote, a lot of Clemson people donated. I guess they like Bush Light too, close quote. Who doesn't? He got to 400 bucks, and then it was into four figures, and that's a whole lot of bush light, and that's when Carson decided this money would not be for beer. It would be for the University of Iowa's Stead Family Children's Hospital. You know the one. That's where kids who are battling cancer are fighting their fight. Kids, the teams, and fans in Iowa City waved to at the end of the first quarter of each game in Kinnick Stadium and what instantly became one of the great traditions in the sport. Bush Beard tweeted they were so fired up by what Carson was doing, they would match the donation and throw in a case of beer or two for good measure. Venmo followed suit and said, count us in on the matching the donation too. As of this evening, Carson had over $50,000 pledged. Now, I'm not real good at math, but if you multiply that by a couple of matching donations, that's more than $150,000 for the kids. So an Iowa State fan who made a sign as a goof gets sent more than $50,000 and instead of buying a car or going on a cruise or going to the casino, which is what 24-year-old me would have done, he decided to give the money to the hospital on the rival school's campus. Is this heaven? No. It's Iowa. Who knew an ESPN anchor could be a prophet? <laughs> did, you, did you hear what he said at the beginning of that? I know we're a little late to the party, but maybe there's another gear here, you think? <laughs> so 10 days ago, $50,000 or $150,000 with matching donations. Last weekend, everyone celebrating hit the $1 million mark. Friday night hit the $2 million mark. $2 million. What an incredible, uplifting unifying story. It's for the kids, right? Is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. Funny thing happened on the way to Utopia. And I'm sure you are familiar with the rest of the story. Tweets got uncovered from eight years ago when Carson King was 16 years old. And that led to a severing of ties from Anheuser-Busch. And it led to uh, all kinds of hell breaking loose as it relates to media coverage here in central Iowa. And I just, I just kind of want to talk about what I have been observing. This is me, your friendly neighborhood pastor, just sharing some observations with you. A Tuesday night, I was getting ready for bed. I think it was Tuesday night. And I checked Twitter and Facebook to see anything happening. And things were happening. <laughs> and, and what I noticed happening was a whole lot of anger and outrage and pointed at the register in particular, and I noticed how quick people were to, it was almost like we've been waiting for something that we could just be outraged about. 
Again, just observations that, that I've been having this week. Actually, the last couple of weeks. In, in the week leading up to the Cyhawk game, with game day going to be there, I saw a whole lot of people going to social media, literally begging the flannel shirt wearing bush light guy to come to Ames and to come to the Cyhawk game. And he did. And I saw a whole bunch of people, including people in this church, with their arms around him posing for pictures with the bush light guy because we love bush light. It's like the, the drink, official drink of Iowa until you do something wrong. And then we'll leave the bush light out by the curb. You know, I'm never going to drink bush light again, which is probably a good idea if you've ever tasted it. I mean, come on. <laughs> That's probably not a unifying comment. I apologize. Again, just observation. Apparently, apparently, we are all people who've devoted our lives to righteousness. And like Saul, anytime somebody does something wrong, we are ready to pounce. Anytime somebody does something that, that we don't think is right, we are ready to let those wrongdoers know just how wrong they are. We're, we're like Saul on the Damascus Road. We're like Jonah sitting outside of Nineveh, pouting, angry, those wrongdoers aren't getting what they deserve. And the only thing that's going to appease our anger is if the wrath of God gets unleashed on these wrongdoers. Perhaps, perhaps, when our focus becomes letting wrongdoers know how wrong they are, we could use the Damascus experience. We could use an encounter with the living God. Is it right for you to be so angry about this, God asked Jonah, and I'm asking you the same thing. Is it right for you to be so angry about this? Well, of course, yeah. I mean, it's righteous indignation, right? Uh, okay, if you think so. I mean, it seems like a lot of times in the Bible, people get really mad, and Jonah thought for sure he was right, and Saul thought for sure he was right, and God had to say, it's a little self-righteous if you want to know the truth. So, so very angry. One more observation. You know who hasn't been expressing a whole lot of outrage and anger around this whole Carson King thing? Carson King. Who's his PR guy anyway? <laughs> He's doing such a great job. It almost, I don't know anything about the face of this guy, but it almost makes me wonder if the word of God is his PR rep because he seems to be following the wisdom of Scripture, particularly the wisdom of Jesus' brother James, who writes, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Well, James, brother of Jesus, what does produce the righteousness God desires? James actually tells us. He says, when the word of God gets planted in your heart, that's what leads to righteousness. When, when the word of God gets planted in your heart, it has the power to save your soul. At the end of the book of Jonah, in Jonah chapter 4, God plants something. Jonah is sitting outside of Nineveh, wishing that God would change his mind about uh, extending grace and mercy to the Ninevites, wishing God would just nuke them once and for all and, and be done with their evil, wrongdoing ways. And God causes a plant to grow up that has a whole bunch of leaves, and Jonah is sitting in the shade of that plant. And the Bible says he is grateful for that plant. Next day, a worm eats through the plant, it withers and dies. And now Jonah is sitting in the hot Assyrian sun. His blood is literally boiling, and he is just so mad. And God comes to him again. 
And God asks him again, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? And Jonah's like, you're absolutely right. It's okay for me to be angry. I mean, this is like the worst thing that could possibly happen. Here's how the book of Jonah ends, if I can get my Bible open. Jonah chapter 4, verse 10. The Lord said, You feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? I, I just wonder. It's an observation. Perhaps sorrow, not anger, but sorrow, would have been a more faithful response to things happening in central Iowa this week. Sorrow that a 16-year-old boy would think racially offensive jokes are funny. Yeah, it was eight years ago. Well, what if a 16-year-old boy today thinks racially offensive jokes are funny? Shouldn't that fill us with sorrow? Maybe we could be filled with sorrow that corporate executives care more about the brand than they do about being a part of something that's actually doing a really good thing. Or maybe we could be filled with sorrow that sometimes news media people forget what is actually newsworthy. There are all kinds of things for us to feel sorrow about. Here's another way of asking, I think, the same question. I'll use the lyrics of the song that Zoe and Kyle sang for our offering song, a classic song by U2 called One. The, the opening lyrics ask these important questions. Is it getting better or do you feel the same? Will it make it easier on you now? You got someone to blame. Whole lot of time this week spent pointing fingers and blaming. Do you feel better? Make everything all, all everything's all better now, right? Heads rolled. How much time did you spend in prayer this week? Did you spend as much time getting angry at them? as you did praying for them? How much time did you spend praying for the publisher, the editor at the register? How much time did you spend praying for the guy that wrote the article? How much time did you spend praying for Carson King? How much time did you spend praying for, I don't know, racial unity in our community? How much time did you spend praying for uh, the hospital and the families and the kids that, that $2 million is, is trying to help? Why would we prefer to get outraged and angry rather than praying when clearly prayer has the power to actually make a difference? It opens the eyes of Saul, this savage man. It raises people from death to life. It opens eyes so that we can break down walls that divide us and it can unite us. What is the power of God to unite us? It's Jesus' way of grace and love. I saw an article in a newspaper uh, the Des Moines, not the Des Moines Register. Maybe they carried it, but it was initially in the New York Times. Pete Wainer wrote this. There's a radical equality at the core of grace. Oh, let me just ask this. Did you spend time praying for the people in our church who are employed by the Des Moines Register? There's a radical equality at the core of grace. Grace is not dependent on social status, wealth, or intelligence. There's an equality between kings and peasants, the prominent and the unheralded, rule followers and rule breakers. A radical equality to grace. Why? I like the way Bono talks about it. Bono, lead singer for U2, 
is uh, very open about his faith in Jesus Christ. And, and people want to know, like, well, why Christianity? Why not one of the other uh, world religions? And Bono's like, well, that's easy, grace. Bono says, grace defies reason and logic. Grace interrupts the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. Amen. Who hasn't? And so we're all in need of grace. Anyone who ever does stupid stuff is in need of grace. There's a radical equality to grace. You know, one of our core values at Hope, we're one body united in Christ Jesus. Let's, let's all say that together. We are one body united in Christ Jesus. One more time. We are one body united in Christ Jesus. Look around this room. Do you, do you feel unity with the people sitting around you? Uh, Dr. Seuss has this uh, book, One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. You look around this room, there are people who vote red and there are people who vote blue and we need every single one of you. Ah, interesting. No amen to that? <laughs> you can pray about that one too, can't you? Oh, we need more diversity. We're, we're better together. Socioeconomic diversity, uh, educational diversity, uh, ethnic diversity. We need it. it makes us better because then it gives us the challenge. How do we actually live out this life that Jesus has ushered in through his death and resurrection? How do we live out this challenge of becoming one? If we actually have to try to live in unity, we're going to end up becoming so very utterly dependent on the radical equality of grace. Here's the rest of that op-ed. If you find yourself, because I think this is a picture of who we want to be as a church, as a congregation. If you find yourself in the company of people whose hearts have been captured by grace, count yourself lucky. They love us despite our messy lives, stay connected to us through our struggles, always holding out the hope of redemption. When relationships are broken, it's grace that causes people not to give up, to extend the invitation to reconnect, to work through misunderstandings with sensitivity and transparency. You don't sense hard edges, dogmatism, or self-righteous judgment from gracious people. There's a tenderness about them that opens doors that had previously been bolted shut, and grace properly understood always produces gratitude. Grace properly understood always produces gratitude. Well, Pastor Scott, I would be happy to extend grace to someone if they repent first. Ah, if you're looking for a reason to withhold grace, perhaps you don't really understand grace. One more clip from this movie, Zootopia. Judy and Nick are on the trail trying to figure out what's happening to these mammals that are going savage, and the trail leads them to the most notorious crime boss in Tundra Town, Mr. Big. Take a look. I trusted you, Nicky. I welcomed you into my home. We broke bread together. Grandmama made you a cannoli. And how did you repay my generosity? With a rug made from the butt of a skunk. A skunk butt rug. You disrespected me. You disrespected my grandmama, who I buried in that skunk butt rug. I told you never to show your face here again, but here you are, snooping around with this... What are you? A performer? What's with the costume? Sir, 
I am a cop. Mime? She is a mime. This mime cannot speak. You can't speak if you're a mime. No, I am a cop. And I'm on the Emmett Otterton case, and my evidence puts him in your car. So intimidate me all you want. I'm going to find out what you did to that otter if it's the last thing I do. Hmm. Then I have only one request. Say hello to Grandmama. I some pool. I I, 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 didn't, I didn't see nothing. I'm not saying nothing. And you never will. Please. No, no, no. If you're mad at me about the rug, I've got more rugs. Society. It's time for our dance. What did we say? No, I sing anyone at my wedding. I have to, baby. Daddy has to. I some. No, no, no. No, wait, no, no. no. Wait. This bunny? Yeah. Hi. Hi. I love your dress. Oh, thank you. Huh. Put them down. You've done me a great service. I will help you find the otter. I will take your kindness and pay it forward. Let's stand together. Uh, we're about to sing a song that talks about the radical love and grace that God has for us. And, and I hope as we sing it, it will be a powerful reminder to you and you will be filled with gratitude uh, for who God is and, and what God does for you. But I also hope it might, I don't know, open your eyes to who are those people in your life that you've been withholding God's love and God's grace from. Let's sing this together. 